Since we're talking about global priorities research today, if you're interested in actually researching in this space, we recommend looking at Effective Thesis. Effective Thesis is a non-profit that helps students work on important problems that significantly improve the world. If you're still looking for a topic for your thesis, Effective Thesis offers inspiration for research topics which have a big potential to benefit society but don't yet have many researchers focusing on them. This allows aspiring researchers to make an important contribution. They also offer personalised coaching and one-on-one sessions to help you select your thesis topic or further refine your idea. They connect you to top researchers in the field and along with that they share hard-to-find global opportunities like fellowships, internships, open research positions and scholarships that are impactful and great for your career. I myself have had the good fortune of meeting some of those working for Effective Thesis and I had conversations with them at the point of selecting my own doctoral project. I was impressed by how impact-focused they are. They're simply there to help you make a difference. Whether you're still discovering which philosophical problem you want to work on or whether you need help refining your research idea or thesis topic, Effective Thesis offers many resources which can help you change the world through your research. Check out their recommended research directions in philosophy through the link in the description. Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Calvin Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Linnica College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Elliot Thornley, a PhD student at the University of Oxford. We'll be talking about Elliot's work on population ethics and global priorities research, as well as his thoughts on writing an integrated thesis rather than a monograph thesis. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Elliot, you can find his email address on his website, www.elliot.com dash thornley.com and you can follow him on twitter at at elliot thornley elliot thornley welcome to the philosopher's nest uh thanks for having me on so what was your gateway into philosophy i was not initially thinking about doing philosophy for a uh, a level um i initially chose maths further maths english and history after 35 minutes of tudor history i was very bored and decided to <laughs> uh, switch to philosophy i had fun there and continued with it at undergrad. By the time undergrad finished, I still liked philosophy, but probably not enough to uh, do a master's and a PhD. That is until I was recommended a book called Reasons and Persons by Derek Parfit. And that was a real revelation. I just found it all extremely interesting and uh, yeah, had to keep doing philosophy after that. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Derek Parfit, because obviously your research is in a field called population ethics. I believe Derek Parfit had an important role to play in that. But what exactly is population ethics? Population ethics is concerned with what we should do when our actions might affect the identities and uh, number of people who ever exist. Classic questions in population ethics include things like, all else equal, can we make the world better by creating happy people? Is it better if the future contains a small number of people living wonderful lives? or a large number of people living merely good lives? Is it bad in itself if there are no future generations? So what are some of the dominant views in population ethics, and what's your preferred view? So one view in population ethics uh, goes by the name the total view, and it says that the value of a population is the sum total of welfare in population, where by welfare we mean the kind of thing that makes life good. 
And it's important to clarify here that we're talking about like welfare across all of time. So we're not just trying to maximize welfare right now. We're trying to maximize welfare uh, across all of history. Uh, so that's one view. One prominent family of alternative views get called person-affecting views. And person-affecting views, there are sort of many ways to explain them, but one characteristic implication of person-affecting views is that we have no moral reason to create extra people or to increase the probability that extra people exist. Still uncertain about which view I think is the best on balance. Like I don't have particularly strong views in this area, but I'd say my preferred view at the moment is the total view. So it's got some very counterintuitive implications, but as we might discuss, I think almost every view in, or actually every view in population ethics has a counterintuitive implications. And I think the total view is best on balance. Well, it's interesting you discuss the fact that there are sort of counterintuitive implications for what sounds to me like a really uh, practical uh, part of um, sort of moral philosophy and philosophy in general. But could you just speak to what the, the practical importance of this field is of population ethics? Yeah. So population ethics is uh, practically relevant in all kinds of ways. So for one, it feeds into personal decisions like whether to have a child. Uh, so for example, if you think your child would live a happy life, and you think that happy life gives you a moral reason to create them, then that moral reason might sort of break the tie in cases where you don't have strong preferences yourself either way. Another important practical implication is uh, to do with political decisions, especially political decisions likely to affect future generations. So this means things like decisions around saving and investment, decisions around how much we should spend to prevent climate change. And then one final one is decisions about how much we should be spending to uh, reduce the risk of human extinction and other sort of really bad uh, events that might happen in the near future. So you mentioned that the total view you would say is your preferred view. And I guess that sounds like an intuitive way of looking at some of those questions you just raised, like, should I have a kid? Well, if they're going to have a happy life, I guess the total view would say, well, that's a good thing. So you should bring them into existence. I guess all other things being equal. You also mentioned that there can be some counterintuitive implications of these views, uh, including the total view. So what would those counterintuitive implications look like for the total view? And could they end up having maybe some wacky implications for policy as well? Yeah, possibly. So the most famous counterintuitive implication of the total view is one that was brought to prominence by Parfit in this book, Reasons and Persons, that we talked about earlier. And it goes by the name, uh, The Repugnant Conclusion. This is what Parfit called it. And it goes like this, for any population of wonderful lives you can imagine, you know, imagine a future in which uh, there's some enormous number of people living absolutely amazing lives. The repugnant conclusion says there is a better population, a better future of the world that contains only people living lives that are barely worth living. So they're sort of good, but just barely. And you might be able to see why the total view implies this. So a uh, population of wonderful, sorry, a wonderful life is going to score very highly on welfare. It might be like welfare level 100 if we were going to represent it with a number. And a life barely worth living is going to score very low on welfare. It's going to be positive, but it's going to be very low. We can imagine it as a, as a one. And you know, if you've got a large number of 100s, that's going to add up to a very big number. But if you've got an even, even, even larger number of ones, then that can uh, add up to an even larger number. And so the total view says that that latter population is better. Yes, that sounds repugnant indeed. So <laughs> how would you think that that kind of issue could be avoided? So there are a few different ways of avoiding the repugnant conclusion. One simple one is we can move from the total view to 
what's called a critical level view. And this one is like the total view, except it says that a life's welfare must exceed some positive critical level in order to count positively in that population. So this avoids the repugnant conclusion because lives barely worth living. Once we subtract this critical level from that welfare score, they're going to contribute negatively to a population and make that population worse. But then I guess to sort of press you on that, wouldn't it be difficult to define the, the threshold or the critical level for that sort of view? Yeah, I think it will be difficult. So one advantage of the total view is uh, you avoid this kind of arbitrariness, you might think, where you know good lives make a population better and bad lives make a population worse. On the critical level view, you have to say that there are some good lives that make a population better and some good lives that make a population worse. And you might think it's hard to draw that line without arbitrariness. I guess a proponent of the critical level view is probably going to say something like, yes, maybe this arbitrariness is a theoretical cost, but it's a cost worth paying when we consider that the critical level view uh, perhaps accounts for our intuitions better than the total view. Wow, very interesting indeed. And to turn to another aspect uh, of the work that you do, you have a uh, Parfit scholarship from the Global Priorities Institute. So what is the the Parfit Scholarship. Also, what does the Global Priorities Institute do? And what is Global Priorities Research? <laughs> okay, so the Global Priorities Institute is a research center at Oxford, and it's focused on this field of global priorities research. And global priorities research is chiefly concerned with the following question. How should individuals and organizations spend their limited time and money? if their aim is to improve the world as much as possible. So Global Priorities Institute, GPI as it's sometimes called, does research on this question and on related sub-questions. So the research that GPI does has so far been mainly in philosophy and economics, but they're planning also to uh, hire in other fields and expand out because uh, a lot of disciplines we think have the potential to contribute to this uh, question of global priorities research. The Parfit Scholarship is a scholarship offered to DPhil students in philosophy at the University of Oxford. DPhil is like the Oxford name for a PhD. And you can apply to the Parfit Scholarship if your research is going to be relevant to uh, this question of global priorities. The Parfit Scholarship gives you three years of funding, covers both your tuition fees and living costs. And in addition to the money, you get to hang out at GPI, which is a, a nice place to be. Fun and interesting and friendly people to talk to. And you get an office and free lunch as well, which is pretty good. One of our previous guests, Emma Curran, briefly touched upon the GPI as well. And she spoke a little bit about something called long-termism, which I think is a theme in GPI right now. Um, so I'd be interested to hear in your view, um, how do you understand long-termism? Long-termism has not that long a history so far, but there are already... Uh, fair few different ways of understanding it. Perhaps the most common definition at the moment uh, goes like this. Long-termism is the view that protecting the interests of future generations is a major moral, moral priority of our time. In line with this, uh, long-termists are particularly interested in things likely to affect future generations. Uh, so these might include climate change, the risk of totalitarian takeover, and in particular, what are called existential risks, uh, which might threaten humanity's long-term future. 
linked to this topic of long-termism, I wonder if you can tell us about this paper that you're currently writing with uh, Carl Schulman on long-termism and government catastrophe policies that you were alluding to at the end of your answer there. Yeah, sure. So this is a, a book chapter that I'm writing with Carl Schulman. And in this chapter, what we argue is that you actually don't need to be a long-termist or even to care about future generations at all to think that government should be spending much more on reducing the risks of, in particular, nuclear war, engineered pandemics, and AI disasters. And very roughly, our case goes like this. The risks of these disasters are surprisingly high. More work on these things could reduce the risk significantly. And therefore, work on these disasters is a good buy, even from the perspective of a cost-benefit analysis this sort of method of policy evaluation standardly used for government regulatory decision-making. And well, I was just going to ask a follow-up just on the fact that you're writing a book chapter. How did that come about? Were you solicited to write that or what was the process for that? Yeah, so Carl Schulman came and gave a talk at GPI on these kinds of themes. The editors of this volume, uh, Hilary Graves and David Thorstad and Jacob Barrett, thought it would be a great contribution to the volume. And I was sort of drafted on board to help Carl bring these ideas to fruition and uh, get them ready for publication. Yeah, it sounds like a, a great idea for a paper and very strongly policy driven as well, which is something that I like to see in philosophy. But I'm interested to hear that you mentioned that the argument that you're making then as to why government should be spending more on avoiding global catastrophes should hold even if we're not long termists. So I guess rejecting long termism won't allow us to reject your argument. Um, so I guess in that vein, what would the strongest objection to spending more on avoiding global catastrophes look like? And why do you think that kind of objection would fail? So I guess the strongest objection to the argument we make in the chapter might go like this. Passing a cost-benefit analysis test is a necessary condition for something to be worth funding by governments, but it's not a sufficient condition. Plausibly, lots of interventions uh, that governments could fund pass a cost-benefit analysis test, but governments shouldn't be funding all of these interventions. One response to this objection is to say that these interventions that we're talking about really seem to pass these cost-benefit analyses tests with flying colours. So it's not just that they're sort of slightly worth doing, they're sort of worth doing by a long shot. So one example would be on pandemic prevention. We've seen in the past that pandemics about as bad as COVID-19 come around once in a century, uh, suggesting the underlying risk is about 1% per year. COVID has cost uh, at least $16 trillion to the US, which suggests that it's worth spending a lot to uh, reduce the risks of these kinds of pandemics. And interventions like a nucleic acid observatory for early detection of emerging pathogens seem like they could do a lot to reduce this risk. So that really seems to be worth funding, even if you think that not everything that passes a cost-benefit analysis test is worth funding. Great. No, that's, I think that's definitely a compelling reply to that uh, objection. So now turning to the, the thesis that you're writing for your DPhil or, or PhD, you've got a number of papers out, I believe one in analysis and philosophical studies, economics and philosophy in the Journal of Ethics and Social Philosophy. So lots of papers. Well done. <laughs> Are all these papers related to your doctoral thesis? And if so, how do you plan on tying all these papers together? All of them except the 
analysis paper is related to my doctoral work. The analysis paper is just a short one on ACT and global consequentialism. The other three I'm going to tie together in my thesis by using the magic of what's called an uh, integrated thesis. So this stands in contrast to a monograph style thesis. You could write a monograph style thesis that's uh, sort of more like a book. There's sort of one overarching argument flowing through the whole thing. And the papers all fit together very nicely in flow. An integrated thesis is more like a series of papers. So they're each standalone. They can be read by themselves. There's no sort of overarching argument flowing through them all, although they are supposed to be all on roughly the same topic. So what I can do with these papers that I've written is sort of put a staple in them at the end of my PhD and sort of call that a thesis. I feel like before I began studying for my PhD, I'm not sure I realized that an integrated thesis was possible. I think I just assumed that all PhD theses look like monographs. So I'm wondering for any prospective students who are thinking that they might want to look into writing an integrated thesis, is this, do you think, something that they would need to plan for in advance? Do you think they would need to begin their PhD knowing that they're just going to be writing a series of papers which they're going to bring together? Or is this a decision you think you can make later on down the PhD journey? Thankfully, I think it's a decision that you can make later on uh, and perhaps even later than the start of your PhD. An integrated thesis is something you can kind of fall into. So suppose you plan to write a monograph style thesis, you sort of make a start on it, you write a chapter or two, and then decide that actually you don't have the material or perhaps the interest to uh, complete a whole monograph on these topics, then you can sort of turn those chapters into one or two papers and then write the rest of your PhD on other topics, uh, roughly on the same theme, but no need for an overarching argument, and then call that an integrated thesis. And then in general, would you, would you recommend writing a, an integrated thesis rather than a monograph? What sort of speaks in favor of doing an integrated thesis? Yeah, so I think there are a few major advantages. So number one is I think you can get started earlier. With a monograph style thesis, you kind of need to know where the whole thesis is going to end before you even begin. And that might take a long time and sort of involve lots of false starts and um, trying again and things like that. With an integrated thesis, you just need to know where that particular chapter is going to end before you begin. That's usually an easier task than knowing where the whole thesis is going to end. Another advantage is flexibility. So if you're committed to a monograph style thesis uh, and you've sort of begun one chapter, it seems like either you've got to throw that chapter out or sort of make the rest of the thesis flow with it. Whereas with an integrated thesis, there's no need to do that. You can sort of park that chapter, have it ready to be stapled to the rest of your thesis at the end, and then spend the rest of your thesis talking about other issues. And then I think the final advantage of doing an integrated thesis is uh, with respect to publications. So a lot of your advisors are likely to say that it's important to try and publish in grad school. That's an unfortunate state of affairs in many ways, but it seems like that's how things are. And an integrated thesis means you can sort of get started on this early because you can start writing straight away with the intention of fitting things into a journal. So your papers are self-contained. You don't have to add context later and sort of make it fit nicely into an 8,000 word piece. 
Yeah, so just to press a little bit on that final advantage then with regards to publications. Um, so you mentioned that I think three out of four of those publications that you have all relate to your doctoral thesis. When you wrote those three papers, how did you go about framing that? I mean, did doing an integrated thesis kind of give you the freedom to write those three papers as papers with the view to publishing them in, them in journals directly? Or did you have some thoughts and directions in your head um, with regards to how you wanted those papers to look as part of your thesis? Ah, yeah. So I guess this is another advantage of the integrated thesis is when you are writing these papers, you can sort of conceive them as journal articles from the very start. And that means, number one, fitting them into standard journal word counts, which tend to be about like 8,000 or 10,000 words. Number two, making them uh, self-contained. So giving a readers all the context that they need in that paper by itself. And I think there's also an advantage with respect to time. So journals tend to have a quite a long lead time. Often it's going to take uh, six months for the journal to get back to you with a verdict. And that verdict is often going to be uh, reject, unfortunately. So publishing does take a while, whereas submitting your thesis need not take that long, right? You can sort of wait until your three or four or even longer years are up and then sort of finish there and sort of submit that as your thesis. Elliot, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.